and we are continuing our study of the parables of Jesus. Parables were a special type of teaching Jesus often employed. He often used these stories to illustrate some truth about his kingdom. And today we're looking at a parable that is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. It's commonly known as the parable of the ten virgins. If you've been with us for very many weeks, you've probably heard us say before that it is of great, great importance when understanding a verse or a phrase of Scripture that we understand it in its context, in its setting. Because you can take a, a verse or even a phrase out of its context and, context and make it mean pretty much what you want to make it to mean. And so that, while that applies to a verse and a phrase, it, it's also important to understand a larger block of teaching, like a parable, in the setting in which God has chosen to give it to us in His Word, in His Scripture. And our passage today has a very important setting, a very important context. And I'd like to talk about that just a bit before we get into the parable we're going to study. First thing we should know is that it was the last week of Jesus' earthly life when he told this parable. In Matthew chapters 24 and 25, we have a very long block of teaching by Jesus when he's on the Mount of Olives. As soon as he finishes the teaching, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 26, we read these words. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The Passover was a time when Jesus had the Last Supper with his followers. So he's very near the end of his life when he's giving these two lengthy uh, chapters, this one very large block of teaching found in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Put yourself in his shoes just for a moment. If you knew that you are going to die within a week. You had the opportunity to teach your most committed followers what they needed to hear. These were the ones who would carry on his message, take the gospel to the nations of the world. This was your longest teaching block with them before you would die. What would be important to emphasize at that time? The teaching block begins with Jesus seated on the Mount of Olives, teaching his disciples in response to their questions. You imagine being there? Jesus, the great teacher, the one who had worked the miracles, who has already told his followers that he must go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests, he would be mocked, he would be flogged, he would be crucified, and on the third day be raised. He's now sitting with his followers on the Mount of Olives. And they ask him a question. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus is now going to teach, uh, to some extent at least, in response to this question. What will be the sign of your coming? What are the signs of the end of the age? He goes on to describe life on earth prior to his second coming. He says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up 
tells his disciples, to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is one reason we emphasize world missions so much in our church, even to unreached people groups, because we know this is Jesus' heart. This is his great mandate, the gospel, the message of his salvation to all the nations of the world, and then the end will come. Jesus further says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And when Jesus refers to himself, he often uses this title, the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. People will be unaware that Jesus is going to come. Life will be going on as usual, eating, drinking, weddings. In Noah's day, all of a sudden, the flood came. vast majority of people didn't expect it, didn't believe Noah in his building of the ark. Likewise, most people will be unaware. Jesus is calling his disciples to live with an awareness, a spiritual alertness, a readiness for his return. So he says, therefore, stay awake. He's not talking about not going to sleep, obviously. He's talking about spiritual alertness. Live with spiritual alertness. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Live ready. Live with a readiness for the return of Jesus. That's what his followers are to do. So that's all in Matthew chapter 24. And then he gets to Matthew chapter 25. And if you're reading it in your Bible and the words of Jesus are in red, you'll see that all these words are in red. Matthew 24, 25, this unbroken block of teaching. Now the, the last of his major teaching before he's going to be crucified, we find in Matthew chapter 25. And what does he do? Three parables. That's it. Three specific parables. The parables are, first, the parable of the ten virgins. That's the one we're going to dig into more deeply in just a little while this morning. The theme of that parable, I think, is primarily readiness, this spiritual alertness, uh, readiness for his return. He's already been talking about that. But as soon as he finishes that, he will go right into a parable that's commonly called the parable of the talents. Remember, he's sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. They've asked him about the signs of his coming. He's responded to them, and he's giving, up, giving them these three parables. And the parable of the talents, the theme, I think, largely is the theme of faithfulness, continued faithfulness in serving God, doing the work of his kingdom, the parable begins that it will be like, that is, the kingdom of God is like this, like a man going on a journey, and he calls his servants to himself, and he gives them a significant amount of wealth to manage for him in his absence. The first servant that comes gets five talents. 
Now, a talent in Jesus' time was typically worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. Now, think about how much money that would be in our terms today. A talent, 25000 a year, well, that's half a million dollars. At 50000 a year, it's a million dollars. And the first guy gets five of these. Well, this master's given a lot. He's placed an awful lot of trust in these servants to get the talents. The one gets five, one gets two, one gets one. And he gives it according to their individual ability. And then Jesus says, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts. We don't know how long a long time was in Jesus' mind here. Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe a couple years, maybe 10, 15 years. What's important to notice, when the master came back, there was an accounting. And the one with five came and said, Master, here's your, here's your five. I've gained five more. Wow. Doubled his resources. Probably worked hard, very faithful. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your, your Lord, your master. The one with two came, and likewise, had it doubled. Two more. He said the very same words to him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Then the one with one came and said, Master, I knew you were you're a hard man. And I buried it. All these years, I just buried it in the ground. What happens to him? Well, the master says, take that one talent and give it to the one that has ten. What is Jesus teaching in this parable? I think in, in large part, he's teaching us disciples and he's teaching us the importance of faithfulness and knowing what God has entrusted to you and using it for his glory and the good and the benefit and the advancement of his kingdom. Then he goes into a third parable. No break in between these three parables. This one's the parable of the sheep and the goats. And I think a couple of emphases in this parable are, one, the call to compassionate care for people in need, but also a very strong emphasis on the certainty of final judgment. This third parable of Matthew 25 begins, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, Jesus says, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So in this parable, Jesus is saying, he's affirming again, I'm coming, I'll be sitting on my throne, and then a separation will occur. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you realize this is a recurring theme in the parables. This idea of Jesus returning and there being a separation. In the parable of the nets, it was a separation of good fish from bad fish. And the parable of the, the uh, wheat and the weeds, or the tares, separation of the wheat and the weeds. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, it's the sheep from the goats. There's a separation coming. I want to stress one verse in here, though, that would be very easy to overlook. And as I read it this week, it just struck me in its importance. Because when we think about this parable, we think all about the judgment and the need to minister to people in need. Those are extremely important. But Jesus inserts a statement that is a phenomenal encouragement to those who are believers, 
who suffer in this life in some way. And I know this morning, because I read the Hey, I'm Here cards most every week, that there are very likely people here this morning that are going through things that have caused you deep, deep, deep hurt, anguish even. There are those who have experienced rejection, maybe rejection by a spouse. There are those who have faced deep disappointment because the thing you have prayed and prayed and prayed for has not come to pass. There are those who struggle with deep depression, fear, anxiety, and you have prayed and prayed and you're a follower of Jesus and you're heeding God's call to persevere. You continue to trust Him. Jesus had just told His disciples before this parable, there's going to be tribulation. Some of you are going to be put to death. You are going to be rejected for my name's sake. He's calling his followers to persevere. And what does he say in verse 34? <clears throat> that he will say, the parable says, to those who are his, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Would you think about those words for a minute? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What must that kingdom be like? If Christ has prepared it from the foundation of the world. It's a beautiful encouragement from Jesus. For those who are persevering in this life. Seeking to be faithful to him despite the hard things that we have faced. Well, Jesus goes on to say in this separation, there will be those who are the sheep and to those who will say, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And the righteous answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we ever see this? He says, inasmuch as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then the opposite to those who had showed none of this merciful compassion to the least of these my brother, brothers. I want to say one thing about this parable that I think is extremely important to understand. This parable is not about kingdom entry. It's about kingdom life. If this parable... In fact, if this entire chapter, the, the ten virgins, the talents, the sheep and the goats, if this were all the scripture that we had, we would say undoubtedly our salvation is dependent on our works. Be ready, be faithful, care for the poor, care for the needy, work, 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 because it's on that basis it will be accepted or rejected. But I do not believe this parable is teaching how you get into the kingdom, but rather how kingdom people live. Jesus has already said elsewhere in the Gospel of John, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, he can't enter 
the kingdom of God. The gospel is not about what we do for God. It's about what he has done for us in Jesus and is giving his life on the cross. Jesus is teaching his disciples how a kingdom person lives. A kingdom person lives ready for his return, spiritually alert. A kingdom person lives faithfully investing, using what God's given you to use in his kingdom. A kingdom person treats the least of these his brother, the hungry, the poor, the naked, the incarcerated, the sick, with the compassion of Jesus and lives a life of love. This is how kingdom people live. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So, with that long introduction to the parable of the ten virgins. It comes in the middle of this setting with Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples gathered, his preparing to leave and his teaching them about kingdom life. Let's look at the parable now briefly. The parable of the ten virgins. The setting is a Jewish uh, wedding feast and in a Jewish wedding, by the way, it was quite typical, I understand, that there's a party that leaves the groom's house. The groom leaves his house with all of his friends, and they, uh, they make their way as a procession to the house of the bride. There at the bride, her friends are gathered, and they're holding lamps. They're holding torches, because typically this took place at night. There the wedding occurs, and then the whole procession with their lighted torches goes back to the house of the bridegroom where there is a wedding banquet, a wedding feast. It's really a beautiful picture of what will happen in God's kingdom. When Jesus, the bridegroom, comes for his bride, the church, takes us back to be with him for the great wedding supper of the Lamb, the great wedding feast. But the parable of the ten virgins teaches is, number one, it's a call to live in a certain way as members of the kingdom. Jesus begins the parable, the kingdom of heaven will be like this, the ten virgins. Secondly, it's a call to be prepared for Jesus' return. The wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. They were prepared. It's a call to watchfulness, to spiritual readiness. It's worth thinking just for a moment about how these ten virgins were alike. Think about it for a minute. First of all, all ten of them were invited not only to the wedding, to be part of the wedding party, right? They were all ten invited. Number two, all ten had said, yes, I'll be part, I'll come, I'll do it. I'll hold a, hold a lamp, a torch. All, all ten were expecting to meet the bridegroom. That's why they were there waiting. All ten had slept while they were waiting, implying it's a, it's a lengthy wait. It's a long time. But verse 5 says, the foolish took no oil for their lamps. Now think about it in a minute. That makes no sense with an oil lamp to show up with a torch with no oil. If your role is to be a lamp holder, a torch carrier in the procession, you show up with oil for your lamp. They're called foolish. They're not ready. 
They're not prepared. Now, last Sunday, my wife and I were not here because we had a special event last weekend, the marriage of our son, Matthew. And as a personal privilege, I'm just going to put a picture or two up here for you. That's our son, Matthew, and his bride, Aaron, at the end of their wedding. It was last Sunday, and it was 4 o'clock outdoors in Raleigh. The rain stopped, so they were able to have it outdoors, and they were really, really, really uh, excited. And I was standing up there, sad to see him go, and the little ring bear, three-year-old Jackson, came up and held my hand. And that has nothing at all to do to my with my illustration, but it was my favorite <laughs> picture, and I, I had to put that up. But here's what I want to tell you. You see the bridesmaids in this next picture up here. Lovely ladies here. The wedding was at 4 o'clock now. 4 o'clock. Do you know what time they had to be there to get ready for the wedding? 9.30. 9.30 in the morning. I said to my wife, what in the world will they do for six and a half hours? Well, you got to get your hair done. You got your makeup done. Six and a half hours? 9.30 in the morning they show up. They're all there. And Beth says, you've got to be there as the pastor at 1.40. I said, the wedding is at 4 o'clock. Why should I be there at 1.40? Why not 3.45? She says, pictures, pictures, pictures. So the men and, and, and the, uh, the, the groomsmen, you'll see their pictures, they got to show up uh, like I do at 1.40. Now, a great deal of planning had gone into this. These guys, my son had coordinated over the summer, they'd all bought the same suit, the same colored suit, got their size, and bought all the suit. He gave them each the same light blue colored tie, and, and they're all building up for these pictures. These pictures are, are one of the biggest deals of the whole wedding. Now, suppose for a moment that one of these guys showed up not at 1.40, but at 3.30, and he walks up there, and he's wearing flip-flops and short pants and a tank top and a ball cap on. And my son Matthew would stare at him and say, dude, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? He said, he said you can't be part of the wedding party. It'll ruin all the pictures. It'd be better to have seven guys instead of eight than have you stand up there in flip-flops and a tank top and, and, and cut off pants. Unprepared. The call of this parable is to be spiritually ready. The foolish were foolish because they were completely unprepared. This parable calls us to ask ourselves, would I be ready for Jesus' return? Would I be ready? Thirdly, the parable of the ten virgins emphasizes again, Jesus' return will be unexpected. The bridegroom comes in the parable while the foolish virgins were going away to buy. The bridegroom comes, those who are ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. The foolish virgins would not have left if they knew when he was going to come. It was while they were gone that he came because his return was unexpected. Jesus has already stressed this point in the prior chapter. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
just like the flood came in the day of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Be ready. A call to live in readiness, to live lives of faithfulness, love, holiness. And then finally, the parable of the ten virgins is once again a warning. A warning of the coming separation at final judgment. Afterward, the other virgins, the foolish, came also. The doors closed to the wedding banquet. They knock on it and say, Lord, Lord, open to us. But what does he say? I do not know you. I don't know you. If those words sound at all familiar to you, perhaps it is because Jesus used almost the very same words sometime earlier in his Sermon on the Mount to the great crowds of people that were listening to him. On the next slide, you'll see a section of the Sermon on the Mount Far earlier in his ministry, Jesus was teaching and he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, what the, the foolish virgins said, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, many will say to me, <coughs> Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Same in both cases. People say, Lord, Lord. Jesus here reveals that he's the one who's going to say this. Not just the bridegroom in the parable, but Jesus is going to say to some, I never knew you. The key, the key, is knowing Jesus Christ. This is far different from just knowing facts about Him or truths about Him. Far more than taking a course in religion and, and coming to the awareness that Jesus was a real historical person who really came to this earth. It's knowing Him in a personal relationship. And it's all based on His sacrifice on the cross because that very purposeful sacrifice of his life was to atone for our sins. It's based on an awareness of our deep, deep need for his forgiveness and for his mercy, knowing that we are completely dependent upon him, but he accepts that faith, that knowledge of our dependency upon him, as all we need to receive us as His own. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So as we reflect on this parable, along with the others in Matthew chapter 25, I'd like to raise three questions and just ask you to think about these for a moment. Ask yourself. Where would I place myself in this parable? Where would I place myself in terms of spiritual readiness for Jesus' return? What about in the parable of the talents? Where we're to be about using what God has given us for His glory and the good of His kingdom. 
Where would I find myself in that parable? What about the parable of the sheep and the goats? Would Jesus say to me, yes, you've done this under the least of these, my brethren. Where would I place myself in these parables? Secondly, what would I do differently if I knew that Jesus would return during my lifetime? If I knew that for fact, what would I do differently? How would I live differently? How would I prioritize my time differently? How would I use my financial resources differently? And then finally, the question I, I think is key for all of us. How can I have a closer relationship with the Lord? That's really what being ready is all about, isn't it? These parables are not calling us to work harder, do more. They're calling us to know Him better and to love Him more. We live in readiness for His return because we know Him and we love Him and we trust in His promise to return. We faithfully do the work of His kingdom because we know what He's already done for us. We know the gospel is not about what we can do for God, but what God has already done for us. We care for the poor. We show them compassion. We show them love because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And it's all because we know Him and we love Him. So I would encourage you this morning to join me in praying and seeking this above all other things. To know Him better and to love Him more. To know Him better and to love Him more. Let's pray about that together right now, shall we? Father, we stand before you in the, the name above all names, the name of Jesus. And our prayer is that your Holy Spirit would enable each one of us here to have a greater desire to know you better and love you more. And I ask for each of us that that desire would increase throughout our lives. To know you and to love you. I pray it would be true of everyone in this room that on that day which will come, no one would hear you say to them, I never knew you. Lord, may we each know you. And may we live with a great awareness and gratitude Awareness of and gratitude for what you did for us when you gave your life on the cross. What you did for us in giving us your own Holy Spirit to live within us and to guide us in life. And would you make us people who treat the least of these as we would you. Make us people who faithfully use what you've given us for the advancement of your kingdom. Make us people who live ready for your return. Make us people who know you and love you and grow in that knowledge and love throughout our lives. And we ask this in your great name.
Amen.